Right, I think, am I on? Yes, I am. I can hear myself, so I assume everybody else can hear me. Um, right, so we're going to talk at this, look at this subject today, God and our ethics. And the rather pathetic joke that um, Claire was referring to was somebody who said to me this day, why are you talking about Essex? And I said, I'm not talking about Essex, I'm talking about ethics. Slightly different to Sussex. Uh, I'm not quite sure how I ended up um, being, uh, being the one to be asked to speak on this subject. And it, I have to say it's felt a bit like a hospital pass over the last couple of weeks. I've not struggled, but I had to put a lot of work into this because it's a huge subject. And, um, you know, I've not been quite sure how to, how to pull it all together. But I suppose in some respects it's a fair cop. Because amongst other things, I sit on the ethics committee of a fairly big international engineering company. I chair the board of Theos, as some of you will know, which is a Christian think tank that attempts to close with some of these issues. And I'm an advisor to a, an organization called the McDonald Foundation at Christchurch, Oxford, under Professor Nigel Bigger, who's the professor of ethics at Oxford University. As an aside, that foundation was set up by a guy called Al McDonald, who is an ex-US Marine and fought in the Korean War. And he was one of the founding partners of the biggest, one of the biggest global consultancy companies in the world called McKinsey. And we've talked a lot about personal vision on our Growing Leaders course this year, and we've talked about it as a church, as we're trying to pull together under Tom where we're going in the next few years under, under the vision. Al's personal vision was to leave a footprint for Christ in the seven most influential universities of the world. Now, if that isn't a bad personal vision... I don't know what is, and it makes me anyway feel that maybe I've got to step up to the mark a little bit more. Now, we're going to talk about this issue of ethics and morals are often used in this context. And um, I just want to sort of use a definition, which is, which is on the screen, which I hope will be helpful. Because sometimes these are, are words that are used interchangeably. Ethics is usually refers, or usually refers to rules provided by an external source. And that might be in your workplace, uh, where you have ethics and people talk about values and so forth in the workplace. Or, of course, principles in religions. And morals really then flow from those ethics. They refer to us as individuals, our own principles, how we make decisions about right or wrong. So the ethics form the sort of framework, the architecture, and the morals flow from that, the decisions we take day by day as individual human beings. Now, sometimes we Christians can talk as if we alone have a clear ethical code. But that's not just arrogant, it's not true. Uh, everybody, and I, I found myself reflecting on this quite a lot. Even I heard Archbishop Justin say the other day, talked about people of faith and no faith. And I have to say, as Christians, I think we need to speak into this, because everybody ha is a person of faith. They see the world through the prism of their beliefs, and they put their trust in either a religious faith, or a secular, atheist, humanist, or other code of faith. And they have ethical systems and moral codes that flow from that. Now, of course, sometimes, and in many important ways, other peoples, other organizations, other religions, uh, even athe I say even atheists, secularists, and so forth, their moral codes, their ethics, cross over with ours. And when we talk to them and they say things, we can see ourselves or feel ourselves nodding and saying, yeah, I agree with that. So there's, there's many things that are similar. But in many, of course, important matters, there are sharp and clear differences. Uh, here's a, an updated view of the Ten Commandments. I don't know whether we can get it on the screen, David. There we go. This was written by a bunch of young children, five to seven-year-olds, back in 1997. And they were asked to think about what the ethical code should be for their world. And I think they're great. You mustn't smash windows. Don't steal things, don't kick and punch and bite and scratch. 
share with others. Don't say rude things to God. Have respect for others. I love this one. If someone's going up a mountain, don't pull their legs. Don't hit people on the head with hammers. Don't swear. Don't pollute the land. Now, they're pretty good in some respects, and we can see in some of them, they would you know, re- relate back to the Ten Commandments, and some of them, uh, well, I'm not sure where they come from, but anyway, they're very different. These ethical codes and moral principles determine how we behave in relationships, make personal and business decisions, and react to global issues, like the environment, the last one on that list. War, peace, terrorism, social issues like poverty, wealth, and inequality, human rights, abortion, euthanasia, and sexual issues like marriage and divorce, gender and homosexuality. Now, every generation since Adam was a lad has had to face up to these sorts of issues, even if today it all seems much more complex. The problem of war and peace, for example, has always troubled Christians, but the invention of nuclear weapons, of course, added a new dimension. And whilst the beginning and end of life issues aren't new, the unravelling of the genetic code and an understanding of our DNA opened up a completely new field of bio and medical ethics. What do we understand today by the nature of the human person? How do we define quality of life? And how do we view developments in science and technology that may enhance that quality for some, but diminish it or endanger it for others? Where do we draw the line? on issues like abortion or euthanasia. The pressure to deny that biblical ethics have any place in our society today, replacing them with non-religious guidelines, continues to build. It's 50 years ago that the Abortion Act was passed, and along with it the Sexual Offences Act that decriminalised homosexuality. Both, of course, have had an enormous impact on our society. Christians, many Christians, of course, still struggle to know how to respond to those changes. Interestingly, the words ethics and morals both have their roots in the Greek and Latin word for custom, as in custom and practice. So as the world develops new ethical systems and moral codes, do we simply understand those new codes, those customs, that practice, and then just follow the herd? Is that what we are called to do? Let's hear what the Bible says has to say about it. Kirsty's going to come up and share with us one of my favourite readings from Paul's letter. Um, So today's reading is taken from the second book of Timothy, um, starting at verse um, 3, chapter 14. Um, It's going to be on the screen, but if you want to have it to refer to during Tim's um, uh, lesson later, then you can find it in the church Bibles on 1197. So the second book of Timothy. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. 
correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all the duties of your ministry. Thanks, Kirsty. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn away from the truth and turn to myths. I think the resignation of Tim Farron, the leader of the Liberal Democrats since 2015, is a pretty good example of the truth of Paul's words. He was, of course, given a really hard time in the election campaign. I'm sure many of you will have seen those interviews. And he was finally forced to choose between, and I quote from his own resignation speech, being a political leader, especially of a progressive liberal party in 2017, and living as a committed Christian, holding faithfully to the Bible's teaching. In other words, he had to choose between biblical and secular ethics. And he's not alone. A guy called Felix Ngoli was removed from his university course and told that his Christian belief made him unfit to practice as a social worker. Mike Ovard and Michael Stockwell were arrested for quoting parts of the St. James Bible. The prosecutor, a guy called Ian Jackson, claimed that quoting such verses in modern Britain should be considered abusive and a criminal matter. But biblical ethics are God-centred, not man-centred. Instead of simply following the majority opinion of the age or conforming to current behaviour, we are called to start with God when we look for ethical guidelines. If we don't do this, then our ethics are built on sand like everyone else's, and we simply roll with the tide of opinion. And it seems to me that Tim Fallon fell between two stools, wanting to hold firm, genuinely, I believe, wanting to hold firm to biblical ethics, he found himself pushed hard against the perceived tide of opinion, the current custom and practice. And in the end, he publicly succumbed. And then he regretted it, and then he resigned. And who amongst us can say that we wouldn't have done, perhaps we have done, something similar? So what do we do? On the one hand, we can take the view that there are clear biblical ethical rules and that they provide fixed lines in the sand on what is permissible and what isn't. Declaring that we are going to hold firm to the truth, to a traditional view of ethics and the moral behaviour that flows from it, we must therefore just hunker down and expose or name sin whatever the world thinks and however it reacts. It's great in principle, but I have to say I don't think it's that easy. We can't just treat the Bible like a slot machine, putting in our penny and expecting an answer on where to draw those lines to emerge. Consult the Bible about transport issues, and you're likely to get the answer that donkeys and chariots are the only way to get around, which may suit the environmentalists or the Amish community, but it isn't that helpful to the rest of us. On the other hand, we can choose to give up in despair in trying to understand and then hold true to biblical ethics in an increasingly secular and illiberal world. 
Weaving our way through issues like human rights and sexuality is a nightmare. And recognizing that there have always been Christian pacifists and non-pacifists, Christian capitalists and socialists, and Christians who are pretty relaxed on just about everything, the bottom line is that there doesn't seem to be any such thing as the Christian view. So it's best to just stay out of it. Retreat and let the world do its own thing, and we will do ours as best as we can. But I have to say, to abandon hope and simply retreat from having anything at all to say on this issue is laziness, if not cowardice. There has to be a third and a better way to approach this, in a way that ultimately distinguishes us as Christians from others around us, makes us distinctively different. A way that enables us to live morally within biblical ethical rules as best we can, without having to impose or force them on others, or to retreat. And I think there is. The Jewish people, the disciples, and the early Christians were all called to stand apart, to be different. The Old Testament laws were what separated God's chosen people, the Israelites, from the other tribes and nations around them. These laws were to be used as an example to others, to show how God's people were supposed to live, not to be imposed upon them. Jesus taught both, of his, both his disciples and the crowds how they should live differently if they were going to follow him. Hence the Beatitudes, the parables, and all the other stories in the Gospels. By behaving differently and generously, by not conforming to the world's way of doing things, they would be salt and light in a dark world. It wasn't about forcing this ethic on others, but about living it out and by doing so, drawing others to Jesus and to the kingdom. And as we know, the reality was, and is, that not everyone wants to be drawn in. And Jesus himself warns us that being salt and light opens ourselves up to trouble, as Tim Fallon discovered. There were many who wouldn't accept Jesus' way of doing business. And the reality is, he left them to it. And he headed for the cross. And in understanding the meaning of his death and his resurrection, Paul, Peter, John and the others wrote letters to the early Christians in order to encourage them to live sacrificial, generous, respectful lives, holy lives, different lives in response to what Jesus had done for them. Now I think amongst other things, this is what Paul is getting at in chapter 12 of his letter to the newly established church in Rome when he tells them not to conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of their minds. He knew that the Christians in Rome had a choice. They could go with the crowd, go along with the current world's values and standards. The prevailing culture, like the prevailing wind, is not easy to stand up against. Itching ears set powerful agendas. And it's far easier to take the line of least resistance and bow down and go along with it, like reeds swayed by the wind. Secularism is strong and subtle, and the pressures to conform are great. But that's the easy way, and Paul implores them and us not to take it, not to bow down, not to go with the flow. Transforming our minds 
means allowing God to change our attitudes, allowing him to radically change our approach, to discover his will and allow it to change us and to change our behavior. If we want to live straight, we need to think straight. And if we want to think straight, we need renewed minds. Our old outlook led to conformity with the crowd. Our new outlook leads us into moral non-conformity out of our desire to do the will of our Father, to sacrifice ourselves to his will, to put ourselves under his authority, to seek to think as Christ thought by asking the Holy Spirit to fill us every day so that we begin to see things from his perspective, to align our views with his. Ultimately, as Paul exhorts the Christians in Philippi, to have the mind of Christ in order to genuinely know what Jesus would do in every situation. The mind of Christ is trained, if informed and equipped to see the wood from the trees on ethical and other issues. It looks beyond the immediate, which we're locked into in our political systems, our economic systems and so on, to look beyond that to eternity. It's a mind aware of the creation story of men and women as moral, social and spiritual beings, but also aware of the fall and evil and the need to seek truth to accept God's authority. This mind has a concern to live for Christ in order to attract others into the kingdom, not simply apply a bunch of rules and insist that everybody else lives by them as well. And it's a mind full of love, mercy and grace set within biblical truth. The Ten Commandments are all about fundamental relationships, setting out the basics about belief, worship and life, the sanctity of God himself and the sanctity of marriage and family life, property and truth. But the context in which they are given is one of redemption, God's love for them and his mercy and his grace. The Israelites were as it says in Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 6, a stiff-necked people. But it was clear that they were to respond to his acts of undeserved love by following what he laid out as the ethic, not worshipping man-made idols or misusing his name. They were to set aside time to maintain relationships, relationships with him and their family and their community. They were to honour their parents and not destroy their relationships with others through murder or adultery or stealing or false accusations or lust or greed or jealousy. But beyond that, they were to treat slaves generously because God treated them generously when they were slaves in Egypt. In business, they were to weigh the scales fairly because God is a God of justice. And they were to treat strangers with the same kindness that the Lord showed them. They were once strangers in a strange land. So there was to be no unhealthy, narrow nationalism. In other words, God's standards were to be applied evenly to all, even to those who didn't follow him. And then the Old Testament prophets, over the centuries that followed, continually stripped these ethical laws back to the basic principles as they applied to the moral issues of their day. And all of them are savagely critical of hypocrisy. They constantly echo the law's deep concern for social justice, for protecting the weak. Amos and Hosea flay those 
who oppress the poor, accept bribes, or use false weights and measures. Isaiah and Hosea are dismissive about those who try to hide their moral failures behind a facade of religious observance. Ezekiel is at pains to point out that in God's sight, everybody is morally responsible for what they get up to. No one can simply shelve the blame for their wrongdoing on their heredity or their environment. And Micah, of course, famously declares that what the Lord requires of us is to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. And Jesus, of course, epitomizes that. He epitomizes love, mercy, and grace. Stressing that he didn't come to do away with the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them, he often referred to the law, but he didn't teach it as a lawyer. He didn't just affirm a long list of rules, but illustrated God's character and the motive behind the laws. The Sadducees, the Pharisees, and the elders of the law knew the words of the law backwards. But Jesus condemns them universally for their lack of genuine understanding, reserving his most stinging rebukes for their wrong attitudes of mind and heart, their moral blindness, their callousness, their pride, and their hypocrisy. And I don't know about you, but as I hear that, I see myself in this. Jesus, interestingly, had surprisingly little to say about violence and sexual misconduct. In the Sermon on the Mount, he confirms that the law forbids murder and adultery, but then he puts his finger on the thoughts and the attitudes behind those actions. And he says that those who nurse private grudges or a hatred towards their neighbor or mentally undress a woman in lust can't evade moral blame by by pleading that they hadn't broken the letter of the law. And on the two occasions that adultery is brought to his attention, he masterfully turns the whole debate around highlighting the bad motives of the critics. Even when a woman is caught in the act of adultery, he simply asks those around him that those of you who are without sin can cast the first stone. Now, this doesn't mean to say that he couldn't be very specific about issues. He was, especially on the issues of money and giving, prayer, fasting, and on things like divorce, adultery, and murder. The Sabbath, sin and evil, faith, seeking out the kingdom of God. All of that he teaches very clearly and I think demands some pretty deep thinking from all of us. In the end, he did tell the woman caught in adultery that she should go and sin no more. I think this is what Tim Fallon really struggled to put that into voice in all all the pressure he was put under. But in expounding neighborly love, Jesus identifies grace as its distinguishing feature. In one of his best-known parables, the parable of the Good Samaritan, he cuts across difference. God's love, he says, isn't in response to something attractive in the one that is loved, or the kind of love that is limited to members of a particular group, like our family, our clan, or our tribe. True neighbor love is evoked by need not merit. It doesn't look for returns. And it extends to anyone, irrespective of race, creed, or color. In other words, he universalized love. So when he says that we're not to judge others, 
that we are to remove the plank from our own eye before looking at the speck in someone else's, he's surely telling us that simplistic assertions sprayed around in general condemnation are not helpful. He took the Ten Commandments and he summed them up in just two sentences. That we should love the Lord our God with all of our heart, our soul, our mind, our understanding, our strength. And then we should love our neighbours as ourselves. All the law, all the ethic, all the prophets, Jesus declared, hang on these two commandments. And he illustrated them, living them out in his ministry and then finally in his death on the cross. So where does all this lead us? First, I think when Christians lose the undergirding of Scripture on ethical issues, we are in trouble. The Bible, both Old and New Testament, is the foundation and Jesus is the cornerstone, the rock on which we must build our Christian ethic and on which we must make our moral choices. And the church as a whole is entitled, in fact, I think probably obliged, to condemn a society characterized by suffering and evil as the prophets of old did. Second, we're to go out into the world to make disciples. And those who accept Christ should be taught to obey everything he has commanded, as in the Great Commission. And I reckon we're free to point out to those who don't want to accept him where their personal ethic and their moral codes are likely to lead in their individual lives, in their communities, and in the nation as a whole. And then, like Jesus and his disciples, we can shake off the dust of our feet and move on. But thirdly, we should tread very carefully before attempting to force detailed moral policies on one issue or another onto others. Overall, we do our best by witnessing with as few words as possible. Depending on how you count them, there are around 2,000 recorded words of Jesus in the Gospels and in the book of Acts and the letters. 2,000 out of a total of around 800,000 words. What Jesus did is as much, if not more important, than what he said. So we too should focus on living out, enduring biblical, ethical and moral principles. And in doing so, draw others to Jesus and into the kingdom of God. And to do that, we need to develop a Christian mind. A mind that firmly grasps the basic fundamentals of the Bible and is therefore clear and comfortable about what the truth is and what the Bible teaches. But then be confident to set that in the context of God's love, God's mercy, God's grace, his unconditional love for all of his creation and the example of his son, Jesus Christ. We love because God first loved us. We show grace and mercy to others because he was merciful to us, dying for our sins and for the sins of the whole world on the cross. Love, mercy and grace are the golden threads that run through the whole of scripture and especially in Jesus' teaching and in his example. And I think we're called to imitate him. That is what will set us apart that will make us, that's what will make us distinctively different. And if we can live to his ethic, to his rules, then indeed we will be salt and light and we will draw others 
into his kingdom. And I pray that that may be so. Now, in response to this, you'll see around the walls of the church on both sides, they're both, both sides are exactly the same. Claire and I put together a number of questions that relate to this whole business of God and ethics. And what we're going to do is give you a bit of space uh, to have a look. They're written on the screen as well. Walk around, have a look at them individually, chat to one another, try and answer the question as honestly as you can.